When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. Well, thank you for joining me on the Think About It podcast. Oh, you're more than welcome. Uh, it's really fantastic, and I want to introduce you briefly. And today we're talking about Emma Goldman, mm. uh, Revolution is a Way of Life, mm-hmm. a biography you've written in the Yale Jewish Life right. uh, series for Yale mm-hmm. University Press. Um, and you yourself have written so many books that have been so influential and uh, important for people. No um, kidding. <laughs> the Romance of American Communism is one yeah. we can go back to. Uh-huh. Um, the Odd Woman in the City, which is your way of making sense of your experience. And I'll return to that, how to make sense of personal experience mm-hmm. um, in a larger sense. Uh, Fierce Attachments, which is a memoir of your life and your mother and grandmother mm-hmm. in the location where Emma Goldman actually operated and lived for a long time, the Lower East Side in uh, New York City. Um, the end of the, I have the book right here, the end of the novel of love, mm-hmm. and love is a big topic for Goldman as well. Yes. So. You were invited, I assume, to consider writing this biography of Emma Goldman, who's mostly known today as a great anarchist speaker and orator and not really a writer, as an incredibly well-known woman in the early 20th century in America and internationally. Mm -hmm. And you were invited to write about it because when I look you up and when people refer to you, you are a self-identified radical feminist. Right. So can you say something about this invitation to write about Goldman who may or may not be quite considered a feminist in today's use of that word, but obviously appealed to you. She's not a feminist. So she appealed to you for some reason. Can you start us out by saying what appealed to you about writing this biography about Emma Goldman? Well, indeed, as you've already said, she's uh, a great and famous. I am a child of the left. I was raised in a socialist communist home. And for my mother, my mother had uh, a number of uh, female radical heroes. And one was Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, one was Dorothy Day, and one was Emma, Emma Rosa Luxemburg, and Emma, and Emma. So uh, my mother, uh, you know, she passed this on to me. She said, she kept telling me they were great women whenever the, the, um, whenever the occasion warranted uh, such a thing. So I grew up um, in a, 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 and for me, radicalism, you know, conventional radicalism, radicalism on the left, uh, the radicalism of the international working class and Marxism and the Communist Party and uh, all of that, um, that was a great romance for me, as I even titled the book about American communists as the romance of American communism, and it was a great romance. So. Emma became, um, you know, enshrined in that that history. Radical feminism is another (laughs) another story. Radical feminism has clearly to do not with overturning anything, but with inclusivity, right? Radical feminism is the work of dissenters, not revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. All right. So we were we are people as all the liberationist movements are 
we want in. We are the people who are accusing the American democracy of not having fulfilled its promise. You know, you know all, men, all men are equal, oh really? What about women? And all, pe all men are equal anyway? You know, you know, what about five million people who are not able? So that, that's radical feminism. When I, I was approached, I, it was, Emma Galt writing the story of Emma was not my idea. I was approached by Jewish Lives and asked to write this book. And, uh, and at the time, I really uh, hardly remembered her. I mean, I just remembered the, the, out, the general outline, but I, I had not uh, continued to uh, think about her in any way. So I, too, like everybody I knew, you mentioned Emma Goldman, and, and, and every feminist said, I mean, women were naming their dogs Emma in the <laughs> 70s, <laughs> not really knowing what Emma's position, actual position on feminism was, mm -hmm. which was de definitely not, she uh, was definitely not a, uh, uh, an ally uh, uh, at all. What she was, was a modernist in the sense that she applauded free love mm -hmm. and sex without marriage mm -hmm. and uh, birth control. Mm -hmm. These were feminist issues, yes. which she did um, obviously uh, support to the, in the extreme, went to jail on, on behalf of uh, birth control. Uh, but curiously enough, you know, as you've, as you've read her now, uh, she deplored the modern woman because she thought love was most important, like my mother, she thought love was the most important thing in a woman's life. Um, so she had three issues that she was would fit into the radical feminist moment in the 70s. So birth control, yeah. free love meaning not coercion. Yeah, but the whole of free love in the 1970s. What, and what did it mean to her? What did, what did, oh, what did these sex. So these oh, things legal, would be legal. feminist issues, properly speaking, right? Still. Yeah. Well, now. What I, would they just be? Have been like women's issues. I mean, what what I thought she brought into the well, conversation. Yeah, they are women's issues. Right. So we can talk about what Not free love. That was everybody's issue. Uh, women suffered. I mean, mm -hmm. women suffered mm -hmm. from the the consequences of free love. In the sense that if you if you were not married and had an affair and got pregnant, your life was ruined. Uh, and that was certainly not true for men. Uh, so free love carried many more penalties for women right. than and a woman was ruined anyway if she was known to take lovers. You had to be really bold and really independent and really and belong to Greenwich Village. You needed to belong to yeah. the Bohemia that supported all of those credos. So I mean, when you went back to Emma Goldman after you got this, accepted this assignment, yeah. so in your mind there's kind of your, the memory of your mother, this is one of the lodestars of her universe. Yes. It's a romance. Yeah. But then you go deeper and say, what, is, what really are her political positions? Right. But and the they book were complicated. And complicated, but the book is not really, you, you didn't set out to say, I'm going to write a explanation of her political theories. You wanted no. to capture her life Right. And that's a lot of your interest in your own writing yeah. as well, to take a life and say, what does it say that is yeah. more universal or general rather than the specificity of this life? I'll tell you the actual history of writing this book in, in this sense that you're discussing now. When I, I agreed to write this and then I found myself at a loss. I didn't know... After all, these books are short books. These are introductions. These are meant to be introductory essays. This is the book right here, actually, yes. A book like this? <laughs> right. Yeah, there it is. Uh, and I forget how long it is. It's just a little over 100 pages or something, right? 100, do you remember how long? I don't know. It's like 140, yeah. 100, yeah, it's about 142 pages. Um, okay, so then you're... Then here you are with this, and then you read her uh, her writings, and you see, and you read stuff about it, and you read other people's biographies, and you see how complicated she is, and then you say to yourself, how the fuck am I going <laughs> to organize this? Mm -hmm. And what? And then you know that you have to look for a point of view yeah. that will supply you with a position, an organizing principle, yeah. a place in which to stand around which to collect the material yeah. of her life, not the other way around in an ordinary biography where you've got, they're going you know, chronologically or anything remotely like that. 
So that was hard. It took me a long time. I really couldn't figure out where I stood in relation to her yeah. or what to do with her. And then, then I hit on it. Um, I said to myself, she's a born refusenik. Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. This is how she was born. She was born to say, don't tell me I don't run things around here. <laughs> and, she, and she was born, fill us in for just briefly a moment, what's her childhood? She was born. Oh, the a, worst. <laughs> she, she was born into a, a, a Jewish, uh, in one of these, uh, complete, like a shtetl life. She was born into a family of Jews, uh, working class Jews, religious, not, not religious, but definitely, they themselves were not religious, but tainted by the shtetl life, which mm -hmm. was, of course, full of superstition, religious um, um, obeisance, lip service paid to, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, parents were miserable. The, oh, this was all in the Russian Empire. Yeah. She was born in what was, I think, what is now Lithuania. Yeah. I can't, yeah, I can't remember now, right now. Kovno. Kovno, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she was born in the, what was the Russian Empire. The father was a terrible loser. The mother, the mother hated him. <laughs> She and he, in turn, um, became a brute. He was an impassioned, brutish man who took out on his children all his disappointments in life, mm -hmm. especially Emma. Emma turned out to be just as stubborn as he. She had the same character as this, uh, this, this uh, temperamental, tempestuous, uh, impassioned man who always wanted his way, and she always wanted her way. Mm -hmm. And so you can chart that from the very beginning. I mean, I, sh I think I write, he, he did terrible things like um, making a walk across a room, I think, with a glass of water, and if she spilled a drop, she got hit. Mm -hmm. uh, and the one thing that he never forgave her for, and this was the source of her strength, as well as her, as well as her extremity, she never cried. She never begged for, uh, oh, please stop, or please leave me. Never, mm. never. And that was the source both of her strength and her limitation. Mm -hmm. She could be stubborn till the end of, uh, of the world, of and life. Can you stay world. with that for a moment? Because you said the organizing principle you found is that she's a refusenik, a born refusenik, someone right. who doesn't accept. What does she not accept? There she doesn't accept the authority she of her father. Accept, she doesn't accept um, imposed authority. Yeah. She doesn't accept an, an, any authority over herself that doesn't make sense to her, yeah. that doesn't feel fair, yeah. that doesn't feel just. Yeah. And from there uh, to radical politics, it, she had the choice of becoming a socialist or an anarchist. <laughs> But the anarchists were much more vivid for her, yeah. and and they spoke much more clearly to who she really was. Um, from there to to that was one easy step, especially in her in her time. From refusing kind of willful authority without any basis. Yeah. And this moment when you talked about when her father is punishing her, and he wants her to just get married, be married off, get rid right. of her, also because right. she's becoming a. Father. All that a girl has to know is how to make matzo balls, something like Nicks, that. Have babies. And have babies. Cut oh, noodles. Noodles, cut noodles cut fine noodles. or something yeah. like that. And That's right. Cut yes. noodles fine. Yeah, yeah, and make a filter fish. Right. That's the idea. She does not want to do this. She goes to America. But before that, when you said she doesn't ever complain, she doesn't cry, no. she doesn't become, and this is a bit shorthand, a victim in this. She actually, That's something right. she else is released in her. Yeah. Yeah. Some strength rather than right. a feeling of, I can't defend myself. Yeah. That's what politics did for people who had no power. Left wing politics, especially, completely. Uh, it gave people a sense of power uh, that. And I grew up among people like that. People who, as I've written, as I wrote in The Romance of American Communism, I grew up among working class people who were nothing in the world. I mean, my father hung from a strap on a subway for uh, 25 years, um, were pressing dresses in a factory uh, in midtown Manhattan. So, but in the house, in our house, he was a significant figure. And that was partly because of this politics, 
because they had politics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To have politics was already to elevate yourself. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I grew up with so many people and known them all my life, especially then going to City College, living in New York all my life. People who came from the same background as me, but their parents had no politics at all. They were just appetite and acquisition. And what was the difference between those people and your family that was politically minded? Those people don't respect their parents. They were not um, influenced to the good mm-hmm. by their parents. Mm-hmm. They never saw anything uh, elevating in life. It was all um, it was all at the lowest sort of the lowest levels. You know, it was all at the level of make enough money to buy a house and have a car. Okay. What I hear people talking about today yeah, yeah. with their kids. Yeah. Um, in, in my time, it was all primitive. I mean, I was growing up in the 40s and 50s. Uh, if you've ever read Revolutionary Road by Richard Yates, mm-hmm. one of the, the great books of the 1960s, uh, it was about the 50s. Revolutionary Road yeah. is about the 50s. And what he caught was the, the pain of, of, of that ordinariness of a, of a decade in which people were solidly involved with security, with gaining security, with having, you know, it was like the Eisenhower era of uh, um, radical politics at a really low level. The Rosenbergs executed, I don't have to go through all that. Uh, And at the same time, they were known as a silent generation. We were known as a silent generation. We weren't silent. People like me weren't silent. Nobody's city college was silent. But the the general culture was um, to gain security. The the man in the gray flannel suit, um, work for a big corporation, gain security, be careful, be safe, be this, be that. I hear that now. All I hear from people my age or who are grandparents and their children who are in their 60s, I mean my 80s, and they are in their 60s and they have children uh, or younger, um, they have children who are graduate students. They worry at Thanksgiving uh, at, at the dinner table. I heard a woman whom I have great affection for, but she's in her 50s. She got married late. She has kids who are graduate students. She was talking uh, at the dinner table about how she worries that her kid will not be able to make enough money to have a house and a car. And I thought, and you hear that a lot if you listen it. And you I don't thought listen to that you. you've heard this in the 50s. I thought, my God, I haven't heard this since <laughs> 50 years. Since Revolutionary Road. Um, <laughs> So do, now, we did not grow up uh, seeking security. And, I mean, but, but you're still in a generation that had, I think, to, so Goldman is I in ni- say, 1900. Right. Your parents are moving out of the Lower East Side to the Bronx yeah, at yes, some point. Right. So this is kind of mo- moving up. and up you. A, up a but your parents didn't leave their politics totally behind. No. So no. that's actually interesting to say. It's not just you move into... And the Bronx at yeah. this point is more like the suburbs, but you, they didn't leave their politics. This it was like, but it wasn't the suburbs. Right. They were it's, hanging from a strap <laughs> two suburbs. hours a day on the yeah. subway. Yeah. Yeah. And the women were all shopping, uh, you know, coming home with big bags of food in their arms uh, and living in, in, uh, in, in cooperative circumstances, as I described in Fierce Attachments. Mm-hmm. All these women in all of these... Uh, Bronx and Brooklyn apartment houses um, with uh, no power, no vision, no no capacity for. Um, I mean, they were they were living much more like their parents had lived, like my grandparents had lived, than I lived, like my mother lived. I mean, yeah. The break between me and her is huge. The break between herself and her mother was not huge. From more communal to less communal. From your mother still having a community of people, community is not a word they ever used. So but, what would um, have been? But uh, yeah, that's right. What would it have been? What what, would, what held everybody? It was like a tree grows in Brooklyn. What held people together was their working class status, like a shared set of experiences. Yeah, so they opened their doors. Um, you know, everyone who had an apartment in a tenement house had an open door, and. Uh, 
women could talk to each other immediately mm-hmm. because their lives were duplicates. Mm-hmm. They were, mm-hmm. I mean, so every woman mm-hmm. uh, had the husband and uh, the paycheck mm-hmm. and the worry about the rent and the food. Mm-hmm. Um, these were real working class lives. Like, I mean, would you call a tenement building in the Bronx full of Spanish speaking immigrants today? Would you call that community? Oh. Like a shared set of experiences. A shared yes. experience. A landlord or yeah. the city or yeah. the employment. Yeah. But mm-hmm. if my mother said to half the people in the tenement, uh, you know, there's a way, there's, there's, we have the right to fight this. We have the right to fight the landlord. We have the right. To, right. Most of them would look at her like she was crazy because they were terrified. I mean, most okay. people are frightened of yeah. um, the first instinct is not. To fight. Go for help, yeah. you know, uh, help for And if we go back to the generation before, so this is, Goldman almost coincides with your grandparents, not quite, but almost. So she comes to America, goes to Rochester, works in a sweatshop, and you do a yeah. very, to me, very surprising job. Actually, I have to confess, the way you describe what she enters is sweatshops, which is not just difficult working conditions you work 10 hours but it's no. it's hell yeah. it's enslavement it is com- it's not just degrading it is physically dangerous it has n- zero oh, I go back and it's, that. it's yeah. quite powerful actually you say she yeah. enters into something she goes to promised land she goes to america she gets there with her sister and then she enters into what she realizes i'm i left my father i left the shtetl and here i'm in rochester this is worse worse which is not something people want to say when they come to America. No. It's not supposed to be worse. It's supposed no. to be something else. So what happens to her? She finds herself in this context, and she's not formally educated at no. all. She doesn't know political no. thinking at all. So no. what happens to yeah. her as a 16-year-old girl, which yeah. is kind of, I'm thinking it's a six, she comes at about 16. So she's yeah. a teenager thrown into this hellish situation yeah. of making yeah. clothes or whatever she makes in the factory. And somehow she finds her way to a socialist meeting. Now, the reason she finds her way is because of who she is, uh, meeting up with a time that's receptive to who she is. You will remember, her sister doesn't do this at all. Her sister goes to sleep after she works in the factory all day long. Emma goes off to a political meeting when she's 16. This is temperament meeting the right time. Mm It's just like us with the fe- with feminism in the 1980s, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which is when I was converted uh, earlier, in the 1970s, 70s and 80s. In the 1970s, I, f- I forget the, the dates already. Um, why did people like me suddenly hear people like Kate Millett talking? Gloria Steinem, I don't think Steinem was so hot yet, but I mean, the originals that I remember are Kate Millett, Susan Brown Miller, Alex Schulman. These women were already converted and talking. And I was sent by the Village Voice uh, out to, to interview these liberationist chicks. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> As Ed Fancher said to me. I'm trying to think, is Kate Millett the female eunuch or what's the book? No, it's, Kate uh, Millett is sexual politics. Sexual politics, okay, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. The female eunuch is uh, Greer, what's her name? Jermaine Greer. Jermaine Greer, okay. Who was English. Yes, British, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. here, it was Kate Millett. Kate Millett was on the cover of Time. Sexual politics, I mean, okay. So you out to, you're a young reporter for The Voice and saying, yeah. interview these women. <laughs> Precisely. They, they say to me, go out and interview these chicks, these right. and I come back converted. They just converted. I just, I heard what they said. And as I've written in a number of places, they were all saying many, it wasn't hard to find a whole bunch of them, one after another. T. Grace Atkinson, uh, Betty Friedan. Everybody was out there doing it. And I listened to all of them. And I came back. And the thing that I heard, even though they were all saying different things, the thing that I heard from everyone was... Men are born taking their lo- taking their brains seriously. Women are not. It it, it was men natural. are born taking their brains seriously, and women are are absolutely not. Women are yeah. taught to not take their brains that, as if they were not equipped to take their okay. brains seriously. And you're a reporter. Yeah, you have. Oh, a- and this went through me like a dose of salt. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I was in my early thirties. Yeah. And I was uh, twice married on the verge of divorce the second time 
And I didn't know who the hell I was or where or what, or I didn't know what had happened to me from 23 to 33. And I was nowhere. Uh, I, ne I didn't know, I didn't know that I didn't feel natural inside myself until I heard as a thinking person yes a thinking person that because you yeah. at that moment you realized that had not be, that wasn't yeah. really the identity you right, felt right I remember uh, thinking all my young life that I wanted to be a writer but I didn't know what that meant and I didn't know how to start with what to do with it I, as a little girl in grade school and in high school the teacher would always hold up something I wrote and say this little girl is going to be a writer Very nice. That was thrilling. Right. Then what? <laughs> and I think you write in one book, maybe it's in, I can't remember, maybe it's in The Odd Woman in the City that you said <laughs> you knew you wanted to be a writer and then you thought, and then I'll probably meet a man and get married right. and be a writer. That was still part of the Precisely. equation. That, exactly. Because that was the other great exactly. story that you were taught. Yeah. Right? I knew that I, as many women like me would have said, I knew that I wanted to do something great in life, <laughs> okay. but that I needed to find the right partner so you tried twice in your 20s okay yeah. so, so the, the second one you're sort of getting through your divorce and then so when you see yourself for the first time in this way how did that feel this kind of that you go interview oh, these women tremendously exciting how did i see yeah like to actually reckon you know, there's nothing like insight right there's nothing in the world is as exciting no matter how terrible a message is it's so great to see things as they are as you think they are yeah and you That's were ready you said earlier you were ready like emma goldman she met her yeah. moment and you met that moment exactly. it's the 70s you're a young woman Precisely. so there's a it just happened to be the right moment and you happen to be receptive Precisely. to that if I'm, but i i've always felt if uh, if it had been the 1930s mm -hmm. I would have been the reddest, hottest communist on the block. Red Vivian. Okay, good. The worst. I would have brought people up on charges. Well, that's actually interesting. Then the zeitgeist, what was in the culture, was what Emma Goldman picked up as anarchism, socialism. This is what actually yeah. totally Dovetails electrifies with modernism. With know, modernism, which, which you would define which, as... Modernism was... Modernism in, in the, at the turn of the 20th century, in the years around the First World War, into the 20s, modernism was determined on a revolution in consciousness, which of course has held sway for 100 years already. Um, they were not into socialism, and con they were not into making America red. They were into making America self-knowing. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. This dovetailed with Emma and free love and, and mm -hmm. uh, all that, that part of her set of convictions and allegiances. That part, you know, that way dovetailed with birth control, sex without marriage, and uh, free love. This emphasis on yeah. individuality. I yes, want to be careful how to yeah, phrase yeah, no, that. No, experiencing oneself and to, to have a life in which one was devoted to the full experience of the self. And for a woman, I think that part included birth control for women more than men, because men were oh, largely absolutely. unburdened by that. Free yeah. love meaning not have to be locked into marriage and not right. to be yeah. shamed. And it also it. included women's rights, by the way. Yeah. They, many of them were, were feminists, but the feminism was subordinate. To, mm -hmm. It wasn't the main thing, mm -hmm. but it was, it was definitely subordinate um, to all these questions that were being raised. But it was there, and there was lots of men in the village in, in those years called themselves feminists. Max Eastman called himself a feminist. Floyd Dell called himself a feminist. Lots of people who, yeah, who yeah. were well-known in that piece of history. Um, and they, they called themselves feminists, but they were sexist at the same time that they called themselves feminists. They yeah. went out to make the revolution, and the wife was sitting home right. uh, doing all the rest of it. And, and when the wife turned out to be an artist herself, or a serious thinking person herself, um, the marriages fell apart. Hmm. Uh, I mean, so they so, didn't really want a thinking woman yeah. at home. I mean, no. <laughs> they wanted a thinking no, they, woman, maybe. Yeah, they thought they did. In the revolutionary future. And they would marry a woman who was vigorously independent yes. and smart and talented. And then the minute they got married, they wanted her. Emma Goldman has one experience. You describe one of these experiences. She starts to become 
She starts to speak herself at these meetings. She draws on her own right. experience. We can talk about that. And then she has her own experience where one of her mentors who falls in love with her. Johan Most. Johan Most. And she returns from a trip to right. Chicago, I believe. She's yeah. really excited because she's actually connected to the crowd and she's found, she's starting to find her way of speaking to the crowd. And he basically doesn't really want to hear yeah, about it. Yeah, basically he wants to sleep with her. Yeah, know? he's like, let's go home and yeah. have sex. And that's it. He brings and her violets this winter. He brings her violets and then someone else is outraged. Who is it? Berk who is the Sasha Berkman? Sasha Berkman. He's outraged already, that yeah. he brings violets because yeah. it's, the workers are starving and you're that's extravagant. Right. Sasha, do you know how much violets Like an Edith now? Wharton moment or something like that. <laughs> but she has her own experience of that the men in her life, and she has a lot of men in her life, oh, which, yeah. is, which is quite important for her, right? You say oh, for her absolutely. story, it's important. Yeah. So it's not a feminist, a separatist who says free love and women are going to be detached from not at all. heterosexual love at all, right? There's none, no, none no, of this. No, no, none of that. She's full of contradictions. She <laughs> doesn't think any of it out. She really doesn't. She was against uh, fighting for suffrage. She was, it was unbelievable. She was really against, uh, actively against it. And say why she was against it? She yeah, has arguments, it, yeah. It, it deracinates the modern, the modern woman. The modern woman doesn't know how to love after, if she keeps on hocking about the boat. <laughs> it's, it's a contradiction. I mean, it's kind of, she says something here. I think I have this, um, but she said, emancipation has brought women economic equality with men, that she can choose her own profession and trade, but as her past and present has not equipped with all her energy, vitality, and strain every nerve, she loses herself. He said, women who start, they get political rights, economic rights, and look where they end up. Even unhappier, now right. they're secretaries right. all day, Unhappy. or even doctors or lawyers, lose everything about themselves, return home in the evening and have to still run the household, but they're also not in touch with what she calls a vitality force. Right. And that always goes back to love, Maternity. She doesn't right. have children yeah. herself. No, that's but, the thing. But she something like saying. an embodied experience. Yeah. Like I would be curious what you make of this because what you started out earlier. Yeah. You found this kind of structuring principle for the biography. Yeah. This refusing, and in your other writing, you've talked a lot about turning experience. Experience isn't this self-evident thing. It's something that needs no. to be presented and interpreted. Yeah, And this moment when she's in the contradiction that she says women shouldn't even get the right to vote because what right. is that going to do for yeah. them? Right, exactly. She, her identity is very complicated. It's not simple. It's not, it's not simple. It's not usable as a feminist at all. Huh. I mean, it's just not. Um, and it wasn't. Uh, even then, um, she was constantly arguing. And she fell out with Margaret Sanger. Uh, they were both impossible. E each one was a Stalinist. Uh, they each have that Stalinist uh, personality. You know, they, they don't. They're not flexible. They don't give. Uh, they're 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 not interested in doing politics successfully as much as they are in declaring, mm -hmm. standing for that. And in fact, she was not a thinker. She was not a a, a, a tactician. Mm -hmm. She was inspirational. Mm -hmm. What she was was a, a woman of extraordinary character. I mean, uh, like one of a kind. Mm -hmm. um, the most important thing that she contributed um, was that she made people feel their condition um, mm -hmm. better than anybody under the sun. She was just. She must have been thrilling to listen to. Um, and she spoke to huge crowds without huge and for years and years and years on end. Uh, and she could make them feel um, their subjected lives uh, brilliantly. And, uh, and that's, that was her contribution. Unlike Rosa Luxemburg, who was inspirational and also an intellectual. And I want to stay with this for a moment, that she's yeah. an inspiration or an, this incandescent event. Yeah. She's an appearance to people. But she doesn't give them the program no. what to do next. But it, no. But let's just stay with it. But that is an important role. And there's also a oh, kind absolutely. of she, and one thing to connect to, which you point out in the book. There's an American tradition of these great orators or speakers or these inspirational figures. They can also be con men and seduce the masses. Of course, right. in America, there's always two sides to this, at least. But there seems to be a particular thing she falls into in America. 
that she's, there's a huge business of bringing people into the hall, lecture halls and stadiums and theaters to yeah. speak to people. And that to me seems very much connected to America as kind of, it's not a country where you, you start out with a full program. No. It's experimental, it's pra right. pragmatic. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's what she loved about America, and it's why of all the countries in the world that she could have lived in, some of which she did live in, she never stopped loving America. What she loved was the passion for individuation and, uh, and the, uh, the, the, the incredible capacity for protest, for you know, standing up for your rights. Um, and on the part of people who had no rights and were going to live and die. Uh, in the shabbiest, most miserable of, of conditions. But, you know, Alexander Berkman, Sasha, who, who shot Frick five times and couldn't kill him. So he shoots Frick, who is beating down a strike <laughs> right. uh, as the manager of a plant. And then, and then Sasha... Yeah, one of the most famous Berkman, strikes in American history. He walks in, shoots him how many five times? times? Five times. and manages not to kill him. <laughs> yeah. But he goes to I prison mean, for a long time. But he went to prison. He was sentenced to 22 years. this is years. the Frick of the Frick Gal uh, collection yes, yes, of town, yes, so we can now admire yeah. that name, yeah. which has been yeah, sanctified in American history. Right. right. <laughs> yes. A robber baron. They, they all were. Yeah. All those great yeah. collections <laughs> come from robber barons. So, uh, so Sasha goes to prison, one of the worst, imagine, 1892. Um, and he writes, finally, he comes out after 14 years, but in the course of it, he writes her many, many letters, of course, and in them, he says, there'll never be a revolution in America. He suddenly sees the difference between a country where no matter how terrible the life is, and no matter how these people are ending up in jail, and they're black, uh, often on top of being on a chain gang, uh, you know, the worst life imaginable, um, and still, they have deep within them the conviction that it's possible to become something different. That sense of expectation, which my mother uh, embodied, that sense of expectation separated America, mm -hmm. the immigrants of, the, of America, mm -hmm. from every other country in the world. Because in all the other countries, you were a subject, and here you were potentially a citizen. And he in prison with the lowest of the low and people whose lives are at an animal level and will never be any other any different. He could not persuade them to become socialists. So they have something that he says is strangely empowering, but politically inaccessible. It's an Americanism that we, we is, yeah. will never be interested in socialist revolution. Will never respond to it because socialist actually would subjugate that kind of individualism. Yeah, that socialism means the loss of individuality. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. may or may not which, be correct. Yeah. Right, we haven't probably found the right experiment. Right, and and Goldman taps into that. What you said earlier, she makes people feel their own experience, which is an interesting expression, as if people don't know their experience. But then they all know. Enough, they it? come in the <laughs> evening, they hear my Goldman. She gets we both live sufficiently long to yeah. know that that is true, right? Well, I, I'm kind of interested in this concept of experience because it comes up throughout your writing to sort yeah. of, and you said some, in another I know, text. I've been accused of that. <laughs> no, it's a, in, in the, the end of the novel of love, you make this yeah. argument that in the 50s, people lived largely without experience because they actually sort of got swept into the molds of their parents. There's a pattern and you live that. Absolutely. And then you said, but you in the 60s and 70s, experience becomes this incredibly powerful thing that it's yeah. a new yeah. a new shape of life or something. Right. It's to examine your actual feelings, not received feelings, which is what psychoanalysis concentrates on. I mean, the Freudian century is devoted, supposedly, to people discovering exactly that. Well, what is it I really feel? What is it I really know? Where do I really feel at home inside myself? Where do I feel exiled inside myself? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These are vital questions which, um, which modernism uh, was... And, and Goldman is totally in it? But she doesn't think about them no. intellectually. She meets Freud, no. actually. I think she see, she hears Freud speak or something in Europe at some yeah. point, which is kind of remarkable. Yeah. So she, she gets some of it. She gets some of what yeah, I'm saying yeah. now, but nowhere near enough, which is what the whole world has been about. I mean, it's 100 years of trying to 
get more more Freud than Freud had, or to uh, to the, these are are um, concepts uh, that are lived out again and again and again until they take. Mm-hmm. Both in society mm-hmm. and in culture and in history. Mm-hmm. I mean, right? To say these things as I say them and have said them um, over and over and over again. And then to live as long as I've lived and to see myself struggling with the same things to this moment yeah. is to have great respect for, for, for the. Um, for for the um, the strength of damage, <laughs> for the strength of of all the things that that hold us back. Um, but that's interesting. What you just said, I was waiting. What you were going to say? To, to you didn't say you have great respect for the unwillingness to think or the ignorance of people. You said for the strength of damage. And Goldman, at every turn, when she talks about political assassination, about prostitution, about women's rights, she said, "You can't blame these people." for reacting, you have to look big, at a bigger place. You have to look at the system that made them do that. And what you just said, people are unwilling to reflect on their experience. They're not unwilling. They've been damaged. And that's a very not different... Not we. We, we, yes, we, thank you. But you and I are not... We're <laughs> yes. But that's actually, that's a very Goldman move. And I thought that was really interesting. She doesn't blame these people in yeah, front well, of her she, Every now and then she does something like that. And, she, and then yeah. she's wise. Yeah. But she doesn't stick with it herself. She, she doesn't really deeply understand the implications of her own rhetoric. Um, so that, you know, you know what, what happens is... She has an orgasm, and she thinks it's transcendental. You know, it's, she, she's flown to the moon, and she says, oh, my God, this is real life. Right. Anything without this is not real life. Right. She goes no further. She can't, you know, then those of us who live long enough right. to um, incorporate the orgasm to ordinary everyday life uh, think, oh, that's not enough. I mean, that that's not making me more of a human being than I was before. So you would think, okay, so sexual infatuation or whatever, or like an incredible it, affair it's, it's is the one dimension. It's, it, what it is, is the orgasm is so powerful an experience because the culture has denied it. Okay. I mean, so okay. at that moment, the yeah. insight is so overpowering. Because you didn't know this was even there, but that no. society has and made that, you. And, and when you do know it's there, yeah. especially in, I mean, when you're her and, and living in that time, when you do know it's there and you realize that the whole society is telling you this is wrong, this is, this is wrong, it's wrong yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to do this, to have this, to feel this, and you think, that is not true. That's a revolutionary thought. Oh, but that's interesting. So the truth of her experience depends on the, the experience. Fact that society denies yeah. that all the time. Yeah. That's the other yeah. part of it. So she yeah. doesn't. Yeah. And what I said in the end of the novel of love, which literature catches up with, uh, yeah. catches up with to the degree that it can't undo the wisdom of knowing that uh, a great sexual passion does not provide salvation. Right. Um, right. Now, n- nobody could really, I mean, Anna Karenda had to throw herself in front of a train uh, in order to um, make that. If you read the end, the end of Anna Karenda again, as I did a few years ago, you're shocked by how brilliant uh, he, as she's walking towards the train, mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. whole last section, mm-hmm. it's surreal. Mm-hmm. Her thoughts are surreal. Surreal in what sense? In that she's suddenly understanding that she put all her eggs in this basket. She, yeah. right? Her whole she gave up everything, yeah. and to give up everything then was to get was to become a victim of the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> Shut yourself up. Yeah, she's she's on lockdown forever. Yeah. Well, you say this about Mrs. Dalloway also in Wolf, which is interesting. Yeah. You say she actually yeah. locks herself into a kind of That's cold right. white sexless marriage yeah, right. uh, with Mr. Dalloway yeah. rather than living out this other life. But yeah. and you said that used to be a very real concern. Maybe it isn't quite the same for us anymore. Well, we used to think <clears throat> that she was at fault. And we used to think that what Wolf was getting at was the limitations in Clarissa Dalloway's 
character or that of the whole society. Yeah. Every, little, every woman like her, upper middle class women who were cold and distant and, um, and using, had an instrumental relationship to marriage, and so we—I remember at City College when when I was a kid, when we, I was twenty years old, reading Virginia, reading Mrs. Dalloway, and thinking, "Oh God, she's so cold. She's so she's so without sensuality." That's what Wolf's seeing everywhere in her class and her world. Then later, as a feminist, I read, and I think, "Well, of course, it's the only way she could save her life." <laughs> So you take herself off to a virginal um, third third floor bedroom. Uh, yeah, and, and look uh, at the lady across the street. Yeah. The, Goldman doesn't quite make that leap consistently to realize. She does sometimes. She realizes, okay, it's the circumstances that actually uh, explain Mrs. Dalloway's withdrawal into this. Yeah. And Goldman does it sometimes. And but you you also said sometimes she doesn't even understand her own experience is also no. motivated or structured by that, right? by society. Well, that's true, too. Yeah, yes, yes, she, she can't get that far. Well, she couldn't get that far because there wasn't enough cultural experience around her to um, reinforce, um, reify uh, what she was, what, what she experienced for herself and declared for other women was impossible for other women to achieve. And who could become Emma Goldman? I mean, you had to become Emma Goldman to, to, <laughs> to, to live in uh, 1920, uh, 1910, uh, the way she was right. encouraging everyone to live. I mean, 1910, you had a baby out of wedlock, like you went to prison. I mean, uh, it, it was, she, she never, she never really understood the ramifications of, um, of many of the positions, but it was important that she took those positions because it was invigorating. It made people have thoughts they never had before. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't act on it, but, yeah. but they could have them. And therefore that string of thoughts accumulates. When I said in the, in, as a kid, and when I realized that as a kid, None of these women around me had any experience. None. They, they married young. Right. Their husbands were the only men they ever slept with. They knew right. nothing. Uh, and they couldn't know anything. And it's only when a mass of people, when the culture really changes and a mass of people have the same experience. In other words, what I'm saying is when we did divorced men we weren't happy living with, or we did have many lovers and discovered the limitations of that goodness. That it was great and it was necessary, but it wasn't the whole world. And it, it, didn't, it didn't make us into different people. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, and then later, everyone was in psychoanalysis and, and that has its limitations too, but it's, 10 steps ahead of uh, the orgasm. You know? <laughs> of valorizing the orgasm, yeah, the yeah, transcendent yeah, moment or something like uh, that. Yeah. Um, to, to go back to her, sort of this, um, there's one part, she goes, she's exiled from America, she's deported with some 200 other, some people, ends in Finland right. and then gets to the then new found Soviet Union, which right. is brand new. The Russian Revolution has just happened and fascinated the world. She arrives in the newly formed, I guess it is the Soviet Union at yeah. that point in 18 yeah. or so, 19. What is her experience there? And you sort of explain that based on your other knowledge of this yeah. whole history. Well, yes, very quickly. It's, it's 1919. She was only there for two years. In 1921, she, they, were, they were gone. They were on their way out. Um, well, she sees, because she's an anarchist, not a communist, if you were a communist, you, you know, you had blinders on, your, your sight was sealed, um, you were passionately devoted to the revolution and you couldn't, you couldn't take apart that. Uh, so you justified everything. And uh, all, you know, the horrors of gathering Bolshevism uh, were apparent very quickly. But more important than anything else, anarchists were the enemy for the Bolsheviks. So even though Emma was a famous Bolshevist, a famous anarchist, and received special treatment by Lenin, by order of Lenin, very quickly, it was not enough. 
uh, for her to not see um, the authoritarianism that was growing and growing and growing. And an anarchist went to jail in the Soviet in the early Soviet Union. And is she seeing? And I'm very kind of this is a very amateurish picture, but is she seeing that kind of in the Soviet Union powers consolidated in the party? Yeah. The Soviets, which are supposed to be these elected councils by workers, are, are actually undone. crushed, yeah. brutally beaten down the way the frick yeah. of the America yeah. beat down right. the worker strikes. And yeah. Emma Goldman says this should not be consolidated into power by an elite. Yeah, she says, oh, this is another dictatorship. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this, the Communist Party is replacing the czar, or right. uh, the Soviets are more and more becoming uh, puppet states. Uh, people are going to jail or open their mouths against uh, what the Soviet Union became. It uh, became was becoming very quickly, and you know she, if she was told to shut her mouth in any situation, <laughs> she, refusing. she, could, she, <laughs> she could not. She could, so she, she wouldn't. and she doesn't. She leaves the Soviet Union. Then she is stateless. Not really, a minute too soon, because she would have been arrested most likely, year and she would have been arrested, and, and ended up in Siberia or yeah. in the Gulag. Yeah, yeah, we've been in the end of her. And then she writes a book a bit later, yeah. pretty quickly. Um, do we know anything about her writing practice? Uh, I mean, she's. On a tour, she gives 120 lectures a year, and I don't know. She stays up all night and writes. She stays up all night. She needs no. When she's not sleeping with her one of her many lovers, she's actually writing. Well, that's different. Then she's not sleeping. She's active, (laughs) very active. She's quite. She's doing a lot. So she writes this book about the Soviet Union. (laughs) Right. And And of course, every every sympathizer and every red hates it immediately. I mean, no one. She immediately she immediately becomes the enemy of of the organized left. So she's starting to lose a bit of her community there. Oh, everyone! She loses a lot. She she becomes um, she becomes deported in a million ways. Um, In other words, her constituency shrinks. Practically in nothing, um, hmm. and that was true for all of. There was a whole bunch of them, uh, uh, anarchists um, uh, from America, deported from America and other countries. Mm-hmm. And uh, I write about that, and uh, I think I say in it. I think I even no. Oh, there's nothing. There's a photograph. Um, uh, there's a photograph of Emma and Sasha and a whole bunch of other people like them. <coughs> They're on a terrace of a villa in Saint-Tropez, which subsequently became, you know, the rich, elegant playground of, uh, you know, the wealthy and the beautiful, the rich and the beautiful. But in that, in that time, it was, it's like the early 1920s, and that, that villa was bought for her by Peggy Guggenheim. <laughs> yeah, a Peggy Guggenheim could afford, then as now, to have any kind of friend she wanted to have. Mm-hmm. In other words, knowing Emma Goldman did not threaten Peggy Guggenheim, mm-hmm. nor did it make her an anarchist. I mean, she. When Emma Goldman is writing against property and yeah, ownership right. and all this, but the Guggenheims at this point. And so, says, want a house? <laughs> so she gets a little house in front, and she, she needs also house. a refuge because she's yeah. stateless, she's thrown out everywhere, yeah. she's starting to lose her footing it seems she has she doesn't know it yet but it's not coming back i mean this is the end and all these people they all look like my grandmother uh (laughs) they all look like these dowdy looking jews from new york and they're sitting on this terrace in saint-tropez and they look miserable (laughs) all they want is to be on the lower east side To be back home, really. And you can see, it must be down below them, the ocean, fantastic plants and flowers and gorgeousness. <laughs> and all, you can see in their faces, what am I doing here? <laughs> so they're in exile in a certain way. Oh, they totally, yeah. they're in exile. Yeah, and they, yeah. and they stayed in exile for the rest of their lives. Hmm. They never, After the First World War um, and, and after Bolshevism, um, after the Soviet Union became the Soviet Union, Life was never the same uh, and, and you, for any of them. What do you think, what do you make of this book about the Soviet Union that basically paints a very negative picture of the Soviet Union Yeah. and shapes perhaps the yeah. understanding yeah. of that experiment for yeah. a lot of Americans? No, her book is not valuable precisely because it is so accusatory. It is so without sympathy. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It's just her being uh, dogmatic this way instead of that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
So uh, she, there was really nobody to speak to at that time. The only people who might have been happy to see such an anti-red uh, book yeah. were the right wing in America and all right. the countries of the world. That's not what you wanted. And I want to ask you something I, because we did a, a podcast with Anne Fernald and Raj Suk, uh, Sekumar on Virginia Woolf's Three Guineas, 1938, oh. which yeah. is a book where she says, Virginia Woolf, I'm not going to support your anti-war effort because we have a lot of things at home, namely the patriarchy to take care of. It right. basically destroys a lot of our friendships. And then I had a conversation, I told you, with the right. late and amazing Richard Bernstein, exactly in this spot about Hannah Arendt about three years ago. And Arendt is, of course, thrown out of her community entirely after the Eichmann book. So yeah. you have these women who write against the orthodoxy of a world in which they were revered and celebrated. Yeah. And they're dropped pretty quickly. Yeah. So is this what happens to Goldman a little oh, bit? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And then she yeah. loses this... Yeah, she loses, exactly. She loses, and she loses her income, support. Her income also, right? Because she's no longer the popular speaker. Yeah. After, yeah. The last part of her life was uh, really mean, really mean. She, she as you say, she, her isolation was morbid mm -hmm. and very, very, uh, very strong. She didn't have money. She didn't have friends. She, she, you know, she kept on doing but it was all at a much lower level than uh, before. The last part of her life, she was scrabbling for for everything, for for money, for support, for friends, for a venue. She hungered to come back to America, and she couldn't. She died in real exile in, in Canada, mm -hmm. which meant nothing to her. Um, yeah, that was a move she shouldn't have made, but there was no move for her to make. She was through with Europe, and... Um, it was a miserable, it was a miserable abject ending. Um, but it, whenever she could, she remained herself. And as I, I describe her, her in, she gets involved. I don't know these Italian, Italian uh, anarchists, young people. She takes up whatever cause she can. She's always eager to. Oh, you know, one moment of uh, revival was the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. She goes to London and raises yeah. money and organizes things. Yeah, wherever she could. That yeah. was one uh, great thing about her. No matter how low life uh, brought her, give her half a chance uh, to, to do something, to pull herself yeah. out yeah. of yeah. 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 self-pity and isolation and, and uh, <clears throat> um, inactivity. And she took it. Right. She took it. Right. That she should have a stroke and not be able to talk in the last months Terrible. of her life <laughs> was a bitter, bitter destiny. For someone who spoke her whole life. Oh, wouldn't shut up. she was taught. That's yeah. what she was. I mean... Um, I'm going to ask you a question toward the end, that, because you wrote this introduction to this new edition, which we're really happy that we're presenting to okay. 21st century readers. Good, yeah. And if Emma Goldman... What do you think she would, what does she mean today for where we are in, you know, in the first fifth or whatever of the 21st century? And what has she meant to you as of when you started writing? Because you really had to immerse yourself. And what do you take from that? That someone who used her voice to make people feel their own experience. Uh, but, what do I make? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I adore it. When I was young, uh, I, it was Emma Goldman I wanted to be without really knowing Without really knowing much about her, I knew that she stood up on a platform mm -hmm. and before 10,000 people mm -hmm. urged revolution. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, yes. Yeah. I wanted, I knew I had to get married and I needed the love of my life, but that yeah. was later. <laughs> when I was 10 years old, I wanted to be Emma Goldman. And when I was 20, I wasn't so far from still wanting to be Emma yeah. Goldman. Uh, and now, oh, how do you how today? She's a thrilling, she's a thrilling figure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she she is the kind of figure that makes humanity rich, really mm -hmm. rich. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's yeah. it's. I I, I uh, it was exhausting living with her so long while I was writing this book. It was exhausting, um, but it was still it was very absorbing. What part was exhausting? That she's oh, to be constantly um, in her presence through her writing and through having to read uh, about her as well <laughs> as read her. She, she is um, 
she demands so much of her of her allies, her friends, her uh, the people she, the people that she affects. Yeah. She demands a lot yeah, of yeah. us. She demands active I, response from us. But I think I love that you said she enriches humanity. Yes. So she gives and gives and gives, but she demands a lot. Yeah. And some people demand a yeah. lot, but they're not very giving. She's a very yeah. giving, yeah. larger, yeah. Yeah. a constant sense of like she's giving something yeah. to the world. Most people are made in very moderate, us, we're made in very moderate, moderate amounts right. of all of it, of, yeah. of everything. Yeah. But she was made in the large, yeah. really, yeah. in the large. Wow. Vivian, thank you so much. Oh, it's really, you. It's great. It's just, she, she came to life here for a moment. I love that. Yeah, I love that. So um, I want to thank you. And I also really want to thank you for writing the foreword oh. to this uh you're you know, we, we tried Natasha and I, Natasha Roy and I, we tried to edit what we thought was the most, maybe not really relevant because it turns it into this utilitarian, but the essays that speak to today's moment. Yes. So we tried to yes. gather those in the book because they're available in many other longer editions. Right. But you and have. Then you have. We also want to just get people, Emma Goldman, Revolution as a Way of Life. Uh -huh. People should read that clearly. And then hopefully the essential Emma Goldman with Vivian's introduction. <laughs> sure. um, so, and... Okay. Um, there are many other episodes of our podcast. Uh, think about it. I you can see. find you're having, a, you're having a good time. Yes. Thank you so much. It's really you been are. a pleasure. A pleasure. <laughs> Wonderful. And an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. That's great. Great. <laughs>